Christie's coming up here. The, um, the four questions of ART I've simplified here. When, what, when next, and what next is a sort of a vernacular way to think about it. What uh, I'm going to be presenting are mostly when and what, and a little bit of when you might change. I think the, the greatest interest has been, and the fine points are, I think, incorporated mostly in the first two, and a little bit, as you'll see, in the, in the third. So I apologize if uh, a major multi-drug multi failure case is your cup of tea. We're not going to be doing that, but uh, there's plenty to talk about. So first, we're going to take the temperature of the room um, and see where you guys are. So case one, a 25-year-old man known to be HIV positive since January 2011 appears in your office for a second opinion. He is confused because he's heard that, quote, everyone should be treated, but his primary doctor says he should wait until the CD4 count nears 500 as long as he remains asymptomatic. He has no other illnesses, does not smoke, and is asymptomatic with a non-contributory family history. Physical exam, including his BMI, are, and all routine labs, including lipids, are normal. His hepserologies are negative. His CD4 count is 850, and his RNA is just 2,500 copies per mil. Uh, his virus is wild type, and his question to you is, should I start ART now or wait? So please choose. What would you do? So very interesting. So two-thirds would treat, I think, and this is the influence of uh, the past year or so and uh, various guidelines, and but a third would still hold off. Uh, let's see, and I think we can predict this, taking more of the temperature of the room. It's the exact same case, but the bold statements are this individual smokes five cigarettes a day, positive family history for an MI, his BMI is 29, borderline hypertension, or distinct, low, distinct hypertension, but at a low level, cholesterol 230, an HDL, which we often see in our HIV-infected patients, HDL 36, triglycerides 88, a borderline CRP. So the questions on this one are, would you recommend initiating ART? Yes. No, as he will not likely need therapy for years, given his CD4 and viral load. Or no, but would start in six to nine months if his cardiovascular disease risk factors cannot be reduced with a trial of behavior modification. So it's a little variant on case one. If it's one, please go. Okay. Uh, interesting. I, I think this. Uh, we. I don't know if it's the same two thirds, but the two thirds still say yes. It probably is the same two thirds. Uh, I couldn't see a reason why the people voted to to start uh, in the first instance would not start the second, but there is now the group that is thinking about reasons to treat above 500, which is what I think this brings up. So would the panelists like to comment, or are they agree? 
So you don't need to if you don't. So I, I, would, I voted yes each time. Um, maybe I drank the Kool-Aid, but um, it seems to me that the virus producing one to 10 billion viruses a day, uh, being active in almost every lymphoid organ site in the body every day, leading to at least, not just hypothetically, but demonstrated low-grade inflammation, uh, over time, I think that that's not good. I think, but also, when we're really talking about 550 versus 500 or 600 versus 500, it's not a question of whether we're going to treat yes, no, ever. It's a question of now versus another year and a half from now. And if this person is going to live to be age 70 or 80, what the heck's a year and a half difference? Why not just give the benefit of the doubt and treat them? And oh, by the way, if you get them on treatment, they may not transmit to somebody else. So I, I found it, I mean, the cardiovascular stuff's important, but I like to sort of pull back to the big picture and just ask the question, what are we doing here? Uh, a delay of a year and a half out of 40 or 50 years on therapy? Come on, um, I don't see a lot of difference. Trip. Yeah, I, I agree with Mike. I voted for yes both times, too. I, I think there is no rush with this guy, so if he was hesitant or wanted to think about it, I certainly wouldn't um, pressure him into starting. Um, I like the second case with uh, the risk factors because I think you could talk about ART in the context of improving his health, and he's got a lot of other things where he could also improve his health at the same time. I think Mike's point about uh, decreasing transmission, I've been really impressed with, with this being a really important issue to some patients that I see. They, they are completely sold on that one point. Um, maybe they're in a relationship and this has always been a concern and now they see this as a way of making that point better. The, the other point I would bring in is just that there is a randomized study out there right now that's being done. We're doing it. It's being done a couple places in time or in town called the START study. And it randomizes people just like him. CD4 is above 500. Either you start or you wait until your CD4s drop below 350. That's the randomization. And so that study is actually three quarters accrued. It's an international study. Total sample size is 4,000. So that should be fully accrued soon. And the endpoints are AIDS, important non-AIDS-related um, disease like renal, kid, uh, renal, hepatic, cardiologic, neurologic, and cancer, um, and death. So it's a clinical study. So the panel has brought up as very important issues, and I think this, it, this merges the issues of the individual's health and the guidelines and what we've learned about pathogenesis, et cetera, for treating the individual early if you're on the aggressive side, but also it's uh, separated from the public health issues where the San Francisco Department of Health and our health commissioner in New York come, come out with statements to treat everyone. And that's the issue of the community viral load and trying to uh, decrease transmission in the population. One can argue about those issues, but I think it's important as a clinician to think about the public health benefit as part of the benefit, but across the desk from a patient is an individualized decision. So uh, this is uh, just to remind us where we are. We've produced 27 drugs in seven classes or subclasses and eight fixed-dose combinations. Uh, this group knows this very well. I, just to reprise the goals of antiretroviral therapy, uh, I won't go through all of these, but obviously it's virologic suppression, immune function, delayed disease progression, the issue of providing a normal life expectancy, 
Uh, it's in, I just had this conversation with a patient earlier this week about uh, the 50-year, 30-year-old individual providing 50 more years of life at the, uh, is our intention. Um, and obviously drug resistance and long-term, short and long-term toxicities remain an issue, uh, but we have a better way to manage those. And uh, just as far as what we've just discussed, there are expanding and future goals which uh, have already been mentioned and gone over earlier today. I won't go through this. We can, these occur in various compendia or guidelines, the benefits and risks. Just to mention, I think we're all aware that, and the aggressiveness with which we're, lots of people in the field and practitioners are starting ART early is because the pendulum has swung. It doesn't mean it won't swing again, but I think this time we've got enough tools in the, uh, at our disposal and enough knowledge of toxicities and preventing them that I don't think we're going to see the conservative swing yet again, although it's hard to predict an HIV disease. And this just summarizes uh, the IES USA guidelines and a little bit of the DHHS guidelines. And uh, just to say that there's everyone should be offered treatment, I think that's fair. Both guidelines talk about that. There's no upper limit on CD4. That's what this uh, case is all about. And that your recommendation strengthens as the, as the CD4 goes down, or there are the factors, the non-AIDS factor risks that you're concerned about, or pregnancy or discordant couples. And uh, the recommendations come with different weights. And I think that's very important. When we talk about the strength of the recommendation, and that's also across the desk, it's too simplistic to say that the strength of a recommendation for somebody like we just presented, asymptomatic, uh, 800 CD4, the first, the first case, everything normal, that's a different story than somebody who walks in the door with even 375, where you're at least, or certainly 250, where the strength of not just guidelines, but our, our, as practitioners, our recommendations increase. Uh, I won't go through these data. There are cohort data on when to start. There's the 052 component. We've, uh, this has been uh, talked about as far as earlier about the transmission rate, but remember that the clinical event rate and those who started earlier in 052, even though it was driven by tuberculosis, it's still an OI in this circumstance and shows immune dysfunction. So benefit to the individual as well as to the partner. So let's go on to case two. A 22-year-old graduate student appears in your office because she is worried. Two weeks prior to her visit, she had unprotected intercourse with a new male partner who just informed her that he was found to be HIV positive on a screening insurance exam. She is anxious but otherwise asymptomatic. She has no history of prior STIs and an HIV antibody test done six months ago was negative as part of a routine checkup. Her physical exam and all routine labs are normal. STI screening is negative. She has a fourth generation ELISA that's positive, a Western blot that's negative, an RNA of 30,000, and a CD4 count of 620. An HIV genotype is sent. What do you recommend? Initiating ART with Favarin's TDF-FTC, initiating ART with Darunavir, boosted with Ritonavir, Tenofovir, FTC, Initiating ART as soon as the genotype is back, 
deferring ART until the CD4 count approaches 500 on, or her RNA reached near 100,000 copies, assuming she remains asymptomatic, or deferring ART to see if she evolves into an elite controller. So, acute HIV infection with modest numbers. So number three. Uh, so very interesting. Um, would the panel like to comment on their approach to this? No. I, I, I certainly don't think I have a right answer for this. I don't know if there is one. Um, I, I was kind of compelled by the data we saw in the vaccine talk of the kind of first 42 days and what happens to kind of achieving a viral set point and um, wondered where she might be in that sort of uh, time frame, given her Western blots negative, or her Eliza's, her you know more sensitive Eliza's positive. Um, I was I actually put number five to kind of see what happens, and give it a little time. I think also just giving her time to adjust to her diagnosis, um, and decide what to do. So other opinions. I, I'm not sure there is one right answer here. Um, I think there is a wrong answer, which was number one. So if you were going to start in her, because of the data we talked about before, that about 16% of people will have a drug resistance mutation, uh, viral strain, you probably don't want to start with tenofovir FTC efavirenz right off the bat. And you might pick the regimen in number two, where she would be unlikely to be resistant to that, even if she was past a resistant strain. Um, but I, I guess this case is the kind where you want to sit down and talk to her and see how uh, eager she is to start. Um, and you do have the option. Guidelines right now say it's optional whether you start or not, although I think that's being rethought and probably people will move towards treating. But there's no rush here because of the timing, I think. So uh, aptly discussed. Uh, so obviously this is, a, this is a, when you have a true acute, which is what she is, uh, with a positive ELISA and a negative Western blot, positive RNA, um, uh, but she's two weeks from her exposure. Uh, she's feeling fine. She's asymptomatic, uh, and her numbers are not too bad. And you don't know if she's at her peak viremia or not, but not everybody has 10 million copies during their acute HIV infection. Uh, and the guidelines are, and, and our tendency is to think that a true acute is a singular moment in time. Because is there something that you can intervene with, as was a question this morning about uh, the, the reservoir issue. If you intervene with ART, can you prevent the reservoirs from being fully seeded? Can you prevent the massive loss of, of CD4 cells in the GI tract? And this, the, most of the data suggests that you, you can't. The data that more, the, the study that Morgan presented that the U.S. military is doing with the prospective follow-up and trying to catch people on the rise and closer to their eclipse period before virus breaks out in, or just as it breaks out into the, uh, into the bloodstream, into the plasma, may be our, a better hope if we can catch those people for intervening. But once they're at this stage, things are pretty well set. But we still don't know whether we'll be able to intervene now with ART and change the natural history if we get better immune-based therapies or a therapeutic vaccine. As far as these answers, um, if you're going to treat, um, if you think it's in a, a singular moment in time, 
uh, and again, there's debate about this, if you're going to, to treat for that reason, then you wouldn't wait for the genotype to be back because by that time, there'll be a full seroconversion, a positive Western blot, and if, these, and if there's anything pathogenetic going on that you might intervene with or at least hold the fort until something better comes along or an IB to immune-based therapy comes along, then you would initially start treatment. And, the, and certainly if you had an asymptom, a highly symptomatic person with 10 million copies, you, we would, I think, all start. And Tripp's point about number one is important. Uh, and so the recommendation would be, if you were going to start, I'd prefer to use a boosted protease inhibitor because you don't, you're waiting for the genotype to come back and you're likely going to be uh, not as subject to the resistance issues as far as transmission. Um, the fifth point is a point well taken and that because we don't know what she's going to be doing. And this is where the judgment call comes. So it's very, people can glibly say treat all acute HIV infection, but if you've got somebody like this uh, that may have a chance to be a viremic controller or an elite, elite controller, that I think we would all agree, I think, that that's somebody, even though it's a small percentage, that you can safely defer therapy on for probably quite a while. So this is a very interesting display. So in, in the context of the um, therapeutic vaccine or something that may come along later, one other theoretical reason to start now, if you kind of have your eye on that for the future, is that the emergence of the quasi-species usually doesn't happen until the immune response, especially the antibody response, is there. And then the reason you get a quasi-species, multiple viruses, is because it's virus evolving in, re in reaction to a neutralizing antibody that was produced against it, and then it mutates and mutates. At this point, this patient's likely to only have one, uh, one or maybe two quasi-species uh, that has already emerged. So if you think back to the vaccine talk earlier today about genetic diversity, you can stop the diversity with therapy right now, uh, and especially if you're thinking about that down the road. So this slide is just to remind you of the five big stages and that the earliest you can pick something up is with the viral RNA. But if you look on the left-hand side, uh, the dotted line before it becomes uh, detectable in the blood, that's the eclipse phase. And uh, uh, that's what we were, Morgan was referring to in, in her, the prospective study that the Merlin Robb and his colleagues at the US military are, are trying to do to catch things very early, earlier than we normally do. And this is just to remind you of the different courses. We are all familiar with this. And the, the definitions, which have stayed relatively stable, viremic controllers under 2,000, elite controllers under 20 to 50 copies. Uh, I think the way things are going, uh, we are really looking for the elite controllers as far as trying to sort them out uh, early. But it's a bit of a paradox. You know, do you treat and intervene, or do you watch and wait? And certainly, clinically, uh, there's uh, no pressure. I think ultimately it's really what your philosophy is about what the future is going to be about in intervening in acute HIV infection. Scott, so, are there ongoing studies still trying to answer this question? Uh, there are small studies going on, but I don't think there's any major study going on to do this. Uh, the ACTG tried to do a, a study, and it, it it's a complex interpretation. It's been overinterpreted to say treat because those who were delayed uh, had more rapid falls and 
greater falls in CD4 accounts, et cetera. Uh, but uh, it's really a question that doesn't fit this case, and it's really a question of uh, wh where you're, where you're going to go. And that doesn't say, and that trial that was done by Christine Hogan and the ACTG included not just true acutes, it included uh, early infections with full seroconversions. So we're talking about the, the true acutes, uh, which is an RNA with a negative ELISA or an RNA with a negative ELISA, a positive ELISA and a negative Western blot. And I think we need greater tools to figure out what that is. And someone like this, the clinical course will be fine and you'll be following her. I think it's really this question of does the individual want treatment? Do you want to prevent diversity, as uh, Mike was talking about? And do you think that something is going to happen in two or three years that will really, that you could add to the therapy or move to, like a therapeutic vaccine, if we're over there, that would really change the natural history and turn somebody into not a cure, but not a true cure, a sterilizing cure, but a functional cure? Okay, case number three. A 21-year-old woman who has had only one steady male sexual partner comes to your office after performing a home HIV test which was positive. You counsel her and perform additional tests which confirm her HIV positive status. She has no other illnesses, is asymptomatic, and has a past medical history notable for depression and one suicide attempt. Her family history is non-contributory. She works as a model for a cosmetics company. Physical exam and baseline blood tests are normal. HPV and HCV serologies are negative. Her pregnancy test is negative, and she has no near-term plans to become pregnant, having broken up with her partner. CD4 is 140, so we've now contrast that with the, the, we've seen an early case, and in two versions, an acute case. Now this is a, a late, a more advanced infection. CD4 140, RNA 140,000 wild-type susceptible virus, and after extensive discussion and confirmation of her baseline CD4 and viral load, the patient is eager to start ART. Now, you're going to need a few minutes to go through this, but uh, don't start the clock yet. Let's give a 30 seconds to go through this, and then we'll start the clock, or 20 seconds. Which of the following regimens do you recommend? Efavirenz? TDF and FTC, adazanavir, boosted daily with tenofovir FTC, darunavir, QD, daily with TDF FTC, ropivirine, raltegravir once a day, raltegravir twice a day, or L-vitegravir, copacistat, TDF FTC. Okay, start the clock. Okay, so this case was obviously somewhat artificial and a setup uh, because it, it, it drives to the question, the last question that Mike got, got after his talk. Uh, and which of the following regimens would you recommend? So we had a little bit of a splay here. So we have uh, 20, almost 29% going for the l cystat TDF-FTC, about a quarter going for uh, the darunavir option, 17% uh, for the adazanavir option, only 6% for ropivirine, 
and uh, very little for QD Raltegovir showing the high knowledge base of this group, and BID Raltegovir, 10%. Comments from the panel and Mike, given the fact that you were fielded this question. Okay, let's start with the ones that we, not that there's necessarily absolutely wrong answers, but the ones that I think are less correct. I think that would be answer four, because the viral load is greater than 100,000 and the response rates are not quite as good. And similarly, for raltegravir once daily, it's a little dicey when the viral load is that high. It's, it, the, the response differences between twice daily and once daily was statistically significant, but especially among those with higher viral loads. So I think those two answers I wouldn't go with. Um, among the others, she has a history of depression, if I remember and correctly. And a suicide attempt. And a suicide. So I'd probably evolve to Favrin's with these other options. And she's a model, so I'd probably stay away from something that's going to cause jaundice. So that leaves me with either Darunavir um, or the twice-daily Raltegravir or the one-day, one, one pill once a day, Elvitegravir. And this is one where you actually could, assuming her renal function is normal, go with answer seven. That's what I picked. So I think uh, that's consensus. And, uh, I, we constructed this case to actually see how you would go through the thought process of thinking about where the quad fits. And uh, this is obviously puts you through a little bit of a maze to get there. But uh, I think the group is uh, the top two choices are. So can I say there's, I have two concerns about the quad. One is um, the studies that have been done that Mike reviewed, less than, or about 10% or fewer were women. Yeah. So our experience with this compound in women is really not there. The other group that we don't have experience on are people, a lot of experience, are people with CD4s under 200, which she also has. Yeah. So that, it, you know, do we expect problems? No, but we don't really have the data. So that, so, that made me vote, I'll, I'll just plug in here, for number six, which is the raltegravir twice a day, if twice a day dosing is okay with her, which it's not for everybody. Yeah, which, I was going to say that I, to keep balance in the program, I mean, I think answers three, six, or seven are all probably equally good, and it's just a question of what she wants at this point. Right. But there are some answers here that clearly you would yeah. stay away from. Uh, okay. So uh, just to mention that uh, the choice of initial regimen uh, prior to the approval of the four-drug regimen is we all know about. And as, as was mentioned uh, the, uh, in Tripp's question to Mike, the Elvitegravir is an alternative regimen in both uh, in the supplement that came out from the DHHS, which is appropriate given the fact that we still need more data uh, on this. Case four. Can we just say one more thing? If she, if pregnancy might be an issue, that might help you reshuffle the options too. And actually, the atazanavir regimen rises. Um, perinatal guidelines just recommended that atazanavir now join lopinavir as a preferred treatment in pregnant women due to more experience. So just something to keep in mind. Remember, we discarded that because of the um, hyperbilirubinemia and her work as a model. If she becomes pregnant, who knows how much work she'll get as a model? <laughs> Don't a, know, it, maybe. It's a New York case. <laughs> it's a sex in the city case. Okay. Case four. You have been taking care of a 32-year-old man with HIV disease since 2006. 
Initial CD4 and viral load were 250 and 60,000 respectively. He has been on Favarin's TDF and FTC consistently with the CD4 rising to 590 and his viral load undetectable consistently or under 20s. He's on atorvastatin low dose for hypercholesterolemia. And for five years, he was doing great um, as far as potential toxicity issues with creatinines in the 1.1 to 1.3 range with very intermittent or trace proteinuria and urine uh, uh, protein to uh, creatinine ratios under 0.2, not listed here. Over the past eight months, however, his creatinine has edged up to 1.4 to 1.5 with a creatinine calculated creatinine clearance of 55 mils per minute. His original virus was wild type, a tropism assay was not performed, and his HLA-B5701 test is positive. This is a real case. Uh, case four, so what do, what do you recommend? Continue the regimen with monthly monitoring of renal function. Continue the regimen, but break up his, uh, his fixed dose combination and reduce the dose of tenofovir. Switch the regimen or stop the regimen and let viremia recur obtain a genotype and a tropism assay. He's been on one pill once a day, happily, for six years. Okay, so the plurality voted for switching the regimen. Uh, nearly 30%, 28.5% would still continue to watch carefully with close monitoring of renal function. Um, another nearly a quarter would reduce the dose of tenofovir. Uh, and nobody, you know, I shouldn't say nobody, 3.8% 3, would stop the regimen, let viremia recur, and get some diagnostic tests. So Mike, yeah. So I think you have to, um be very worried that tenofovir is the agent that's causing the renal dysfunction. Um, he started off taking the regimen when his creatinine was like 1.1, 1.3, right, at baseline, so he may have been just on the cusp of what you would consider safe for initiation of a tenofovir-based regimen, and now it's um, definitely higher. The proteinuria is worrisome for both in terms of tubular dysfunction and also in terms of glomerular dysfunction. I think getting some additional urinary values at this time and see whether there's glucosuria that um, is more consistent with proximal renal so, tubular damage. So what if I told you he has no glycosuria and his urine protein spot, urine protein to creatinine ratio is even better than it was before? That uh, makes it confusing, even more confusing. Um, <clears throat> phosphate. <laughs> phosphate is normal. Is normal. So um, then you have to think that maybe some of this is due to his hypertensive disease or something. I think he was also hypertensive before, um, and maybe not so clearly the tenofovir toxicity. But I think uh, my threshold for switching would be around this time anyways. I don't think there's a clear guideline as to how much change in creatinine or loss of uh, creatinine clearance is, necessitates a switch, but I think uh, switching them off of the tenofovir would be something I'd be interested in doing. I just wanted to mention before I switched him, I would just check it and make sure I knew his hep B status and that he wasn't someone whose hep B was being controlled by tenofovir because then I'd have a much, um, I'd be much more reluctant to switch because of the possibility of that breaking through. So he's been vaccinated and his hepatitis B surface antibody Positive, continue. 
the uh, package insert says that you have to make a dose adjustment at creatinine clearance of 50. He was 55, I think. So we are nearing the time when we have to do something. The problem with number two is they recommend if you're below 50 that you switch to every other day, and of course that would have to mean breaking apart the one pill once a day regimen. And if we do think this is early toxicity, of course he will continue to progress in his toxicity. And um, one comment about answer four, you don't have to necessarily stop the regimen. There's an emerging DNA test that can look at the, if you will, the genotype of the envelope region and make a pretty good estimate of what the tropism uh, is for that patient's virus. It's not FDA approved yet, I don't think. It's not quite ready for prime time, but that's kind of a little bit futuristic. I think it'll pan out at some point, but that, not to say that Maravarox's gonna solve the kidney problem necessarily. So let's take the next step. And uh, don't start the clock yet. Um, you have decided to recommend a switch, which the plurality of you voted for. Which regimen do you choose? Uh, and I won't read them all. You can scan them. We'll give you 20 seconds or so to go through the, and then we'll call for the clock. I see a lot of pensive voices, faces out there. Let's wait 10 more seconds before starting the... Okay. Okay, start the last 10 seconds. So, so number five, okay, um, we're 35%, ourselves a finger, it looks like. the plurality really takes hold. <laughs> so part of this case, and this is, a, this is truly a real case, uh, evolving as we speak, um, uh, shows you the difficulty with, for example, someone who's HLA-B5701 positive who's been fine on uh, the, the three-drug fixed-dose combination, you get this late tenofovir-related presumptive toxicity, and it doesn't be, it's becomes complicated very quickly. And you're moving from a sim very simple regimen to consideration of lots of other things. Uh, so let's turn to the panel, because we had the clear winner, but then a real spread over all the other choices. So. Uh, I went with the clear winner, um, and I, it was, again, kind of, just looking at all of the other options, um, new, several of them contain tenofovir, which, I mean, we had discussed why, if we were making the switch, it was probably because of the concern of tenofovir toxicity. I guess only one actually contained tenofovir. Um, I think there's more tolerable agents than zidovudine. Um, I was concerned about the back of your because of the HLA typing and the potential for hypersusceptibility syndrome. Um, which for me, I think just left five and six then, or, or seven. Um, I didn't have the tropism test, so I, I didn't go with seven, and I didn't think, you know, it was nece necessary um, based on what I knew about his past treatment. Um, and then, so leaving five and six, and I was more comfortable leaving the FTC on board. So that's why I went with five. Thanks. 
Thanks, Kristen. Any additions to that? The, the concern is that there was a single arm study that's been published done by the ACTG with Regimen 6, boosted darunavir and raltegravir, which seemed like it would be great and had about a 30% failure rate that's never been explained very well. They did give the darunavir once a day and the raltegravir twice a day, so some people assumed maybe people were missing their second dose of raltegravir. Um, there is a big randomized study with, uh, that's being done in Europe um, that has that as one of the arms and has been reviewed several times by their DSMB and has not been stopped. So maybe that was a red herring. Um, but that's why I liked Christie's choice of number five, at least adding the FTC to that. Trip, that's the ACTG study, was that a switch study where someone was suppressed or that was naive? No, it was treatment naive. It was single arm, which is problematic, but that's yeah. what it was. And they, they just compared it to, you know, we expected that regimen would be good, right? Well tolerated, both drugs are potent, but put them together and test it in 30% experience failure. It was a small study, but, uh, but that's published data. Yeah, this is a situation, I, I don't know if I heard, I couldn't hear you completely, but where number four is pretty much not a great answer because you're going to kick the uh, creatinine up yet again just, if you will, artificially and lead to more confusion. So you want to probably avoid that. And the creatinine clearance is less than 70. Right. So this was, the, exactly. So this was driving after a few things. One is uh, return to the, for us, do you return to ZDV? And I can tell you that the patient vetoed this before it could come out for discussion. Number two, I would avoid, I think that's because of what Christy mentioned, you know he's HLA-B5701 positive, so you wouldn't want to take the risk of a back of ear. Uh, and so all the regimens with ZDV3TC, ZDV in them are not good. The regimen four is not good because it maintains tenofovir. Uh, and so what this brings, and then the Maraviroc issues uh, come up because of, uh, and the, the hesitancy there because we don't know his, his tropism. So this comes down to uh, five or six in my mind, and six brings up the issues which we're thinking about more and more of nucleoside sparing regimens uh, and how you do that. And if you're going to give darunavir, even to a, to a, a, in, as with raltegravir as two drugs, I personally think we don't have the data yet, but that should probably be twice daily darunavir boosted with raltegravir. Uh, and I think many of us have had experience with that, but it's all anecdotal. We're waiting for the, tri the European trial that Tripp mentioned. The NEAT, the NEAT trial will tell us it's fully enrolled and in follow-up. Uh, and Bent uh, 5 is probably the safest because he's, that drug is not a problem, and it provides that extra measure of safety. Uh, so this brings up several issues about toxicities, potential toxicities, and particularly the late issues with tenofovir, and are we gonna see more of that uh, as the years go by? And we'll refer to a VA study a little bit later. So uh, we're heading toward the last minute or two, and here's the last case. You have been taking care of a 27-year-old woman with well-controlled HIV infection on darunavir-boosted tenofovir FTC. Her CD4 count is 400. Her RNA level has been consistently under 20 to 50 copies by commercial assays, and this returns to the morning. A validated research assay informs you that her viral load is repeatedly quantifiable at 10 to 12 copies per mil. What do you tell the patient? 
Her residual viremia is the result of ongoing low-level viral replication, but she should continue her current therapy. Her residual viremia is the result of ongoing low-level viral replication, and it would be wise to intensify her regimen with raltegravir. Her residual viremia is primarily the result of release of virus from latent cell reservoirs, and irrespective of the source of her residual viremia, it is of no clinical consequence, so she should not worry. Okay. hard to bring us full circle from the first talk. Uh, okay, so interesting. So a plurality, 41%, uh, said it's irrespective of the source of it. It is of no clinical consequence, so she shouldn't worry. I'm going to want the panel to comment on that. Uh, the next, the, a third said it's the result of virus from latent reservoirs. Uh, very few chose intensification with raltegravir, and 18% uh, chose number one, ongoing low-level viral replication. So comments. The plurality, 42%, said number four. That's what I picked, and uh, even though I think number three is correct as well. Uh, this, you know, you guys should be complimented for how you put this data together because it refers again back to earlier morning talks. And the one that Dr. Silicano just gave us uh, told us in so many words that when you have virus suppressed below the limit of the standard assays, there's no demonstrative ongoing replication. Um, and so that research assay that was done in this case, you'd have to ask why it was done, but it's probably of no clinical significance because we have data over years of people just like her who didn't break through with resistant virus, which almost certainly would be the case that there was ongoing replication in the face of drug pressure. And the second thing is that um, uh, there have been studies of intensification, some done here in New York, where they took people with um, suppressed virus, used research assays, added extra drugs, and saw absolutely no difference, uh, implying that the replication was already shut down. My belief, lack of a better word, is that there is, this viremia is probably due to some release from latent cells, uh, even if you don't give it that, there's no clinical meeting. So I think answer four is the right thing in her case. Any, any other opinions? Agreed. We don't have, uh, Bob is here, I, we didn't, I don't know if you had a, a, a button to push, but will, I would have been interested in his response. <laughs> so my personal feeling is that uh, uh, the answer here is number three. and. I don't disagree with number four because it's of no immediate clinical consequence, immediate clinical consequence, but is it a consequence in the long term? This brings up the issue of reservoirs and immune activation and the issue of non-AIDS complications in the long term. Uh, so, uh, so we know that immune activation happens with uh, HIV replication uh, and that this immune activation we think is related to uh, some of our non-AIDS complications, it's not as simple as that. There is bacterial translocation, at least early on after infection, and there's debate about whether that, how much that continues, but certainly there's ongoing measures of either, in some laboratories, 16-sRNA, LPS, or more commonly, macrophage activation markers like soluble CD14, but we know this is associated with T-cell loss, and markers of inflammation in SMART, which started this whole ball rolling, uh, were prognostic of all-cause mortality. 
Now, the last point on the slide is the crucial issue. Uh, the immune activation is, not, is decreased, but is not down to normal levels by antiretroviral therapy, even those who are fully suppressed. So uh, it gets back to our goals of antiretroviral therapy uh, a little bit, and uh, are we going to prevent non-AIDS complications, and, and uh, what's the role of immune activation, and what's the role of, that, of the reservoirs that are spitting out intermittent levels of virus uh, uh, in that regard. So there are trials of anti-inflammatory agents and obviously issues to bring virus replication further down. Uh, but the intensification, as was mentioned a uh, number of times today, the intensification studies have not been uh, successful, particularly with raltegravir, but any of them. And a number of drugs have been tried. Uh, uh, and so the, uh, the, where we are is trying to figure out what the inflammation and the immune activation are due to, and it, it's too simplistic to say that all the non-AIDS complications that we have are uh, related, or it's the final common pathway, it's an epiphenomenon. So I just mentioned quickly, and we'll stop, that there are a few chinks in the armor that we've discussed today, and I'll, um, they're just listed here, and you'll get these in the email, and uh, the, what we learn from these studies, I think that long-term toxicities, we have to keep, we didn't talk much about resistance, but we have to think about that. The adherence assessments, I think, relate to the PrEP issues that we heard about earlier. Are we measuring adherence in, in, in PrEP or in treated patients properly? And just the future evolution, I'll just leave this slide up. What we still have to do, and part of the last, the next to last case was thinking about nucleoside sparing regimens. Obviously, we're going to long, thinking about long-acting regimens. And are we going to get life expectancy clearly equal to HIV-negative controls? And it's not part of today's discussion, but the gap is widening, and the fight has to continue to try to deliver the therapy where it needs to go. So I'm going to, I think we're done. And we'll go to the discussion. There we go. So thank you. We're going to take uh, uh, just five minutes, I think, for questions, and then we have to move on. We're running a few minutes late. Um, question for the panel. Has there been a difference in immunologic response elucidated between viremic controllers and elite controllers? didn't quite hear you. Immunologic response elucidated between elites and viremic controllers. Elites and viremic controllers. Immunologic response to therapy? Both have normal CD4s by definition. So I'm not sure I understand that question. Yeah, I, I don't think there, I don't know what, whether it's immunologic response uh, to a neoantigen or just the immune parameters. But the immune parameters are not particularly different. Um, okay. I think we'll call this to a halt. Uh, if you have questions when the, when, the, when the session ends, please come up. I'd like to thank the panel. And, and the audience.